Well, uh, it hasn't happened yet. This is Isaac. There is no Brian. But there is CJ. Yay! Fuck you, Brian. (laughs) Isaac's bad because Brian uh, is not visiting Isaac despite being close by. My co-hosts hate me. It's because of how intelligent I am and how brilliant my takes are on the pod. They're jealous. They don't want to be around me. We're trying to steal your clout. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm just awash in the brilliance of an article that is in the Duke alumni mag that I just uh, that I just saw a tweet about, which I will now read on the pod. Replacing traditional wood-burning stoves in sub-Saharan Africa with cleaner technology could offset carbon emissions, hyphen, if people would use them. A Duke team is addressing obstacles that prevent people from changing their practices. How about uh, we address the obstacles that prevent billionaires from changing their fucking practices? <laughs> God. Someone, I actually saw the same thing on Twitter and someone quote tweeted it to point out that Duke like single-handedly stopped high-speed rail from coming to the research triangle. 100% they did, yes. Which as someone moving to the research triangle, I'm like, I love high-speed rail. I would love to utilize high-speed rail, but alas, it's not to be. Yeah, well, uh, you know, this this is the whole like, cows farting is like causing climate change whereas you know the Koch brothers business coke industry is releasing like seven million tons of carbon emissions like a year or an hour or whatever the fuck it is is not so uh just in case you're listening to this and you think that your individual stuff or practices has a bigger uh impact on the environment than the actual like you know acts of billionaires and corporations stop thinking that because you didn't set the ocean on fire this week okay cj why don't you take us into all this before we get lost in my hatred for the duke alumni mag yeah i was like we're taking it in a different direction than i expected at the beginning of the pod this is actually the second time the duke alumni mag has been dragged on this podcast (laughs) can i i'm i've already been in trouble you're gonna get me in trouble again Anyway, well, it's another it's another week of the skeleton crew. Uh, it's the summer, you know. People are in and out, so we miss you, Brian. But this week, uh, Isaac and I are running the ship, and we were going to, um, I think, talk more about the recent article that came out in Vox by Emily Vanderworth, which was about Isabel Fall and the controversy and fallout surrounding her short story. I sexually identify as an attack helicopter, which was subsequently renamed Helicopter Story. I think we wanted to get into it because there's just a lot of interesting uh, interesting dynamics happening in that story. But uh, do you want me to do like a quick recap of the article, maybe? Maybe just like the original incident and then and then the article, if you think. Because I'm actually not even sure how widespread knowledge of this event is like it was like taking place just before the inauguration and kind of in a hyper focused uh, niche of Twitter folks. So maybe just take us all the way back to where we began. Yeah. So this is like, this is for sure niche Twitter content in some ways. Uh, (laughs) Like it's, if you're not on like, trans literary Twitter, there is a good chance you haven't heard of this. Basically, Isabel Fall was the pen name for a trans woman whose legal identity no no one, including reporters, actually knows. And Isabel Fall wrote and published a story called I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter in like a year ago in 2020, uh, in early 2020. And I sexually identify as an attack helicopter is like a, like a, it's a meme. It's kind of like it's copy pasta that right-wingers love to use to point out like, oh, you can just identify as anything nowadays. Like if you can, if you're a man who can identify as a woman, then, you know, like, why can't I identify as a dishwasher or whatever? You know, it's just like, it's, it's old and tired. Um, And the article that Emily Vanderwerp wrote, she, pointed out that it 
originated around 2014. So it's been on the internet for a long time. So the story is like a, like a sci-fi story. Uh, it was published on Clark's World, which is uh, like kind of a genre literary site. I read it actually like before before it had really gotten super controversial just because of um, the Twitter circles that I run in. (laughs) But sci-fi is not really my bag. And so I think I didn't even get all the way through it because of like my attention span had just been like shot by COVID at that point. You know, like there was just... Pandemic reading. (laughs) There was just so much... I think it maybe came out slightly before the pandemic timeline-wise, but there was just... Oh God, that's right. But it was like right as, you know, I was in New York at the time. And so like it was right as news about COVID was like really starting to bubble up. And I, you know, it's not my bag anyway. So I think I read part of it and was like, oh, I kind of see like what the author's doing. But, you know, it's fine. I'm not going to like, you know, I just can't continue reading this because I don't have the attention span. But I did not personally find it like, I don't want to say that I didn't. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember having a ton of reaction to it, I guess, is what I will say. Um, but the controversy that came out of it pretty quickly in bad faith started, people started arguing pretty quickly in bad faith on Twitter, I would say, and in the comments of the story. Before they, we get into the the backlash, the way I understand it, because the other thing about this is you can't read the story now. Um, it's been removed from the internet and I tried to find, I even tried to find it under its new title, Helicopter Story, and I, I couldn't locate it anywhere. But from what I understand, the premise of the art of the story is that in the future, a woman is like, joined the military and is kind of trained to, uh, think of her gender as like an attack helicopter as she goes into battle and stuff like that. Can you kind of expand on that for folks who don't know? Yeah. And again, I read part of it. And so this is mostly based on other people's summaries. <laughs> um, but as, as I understand it, the plot is, is heavily, it, well, it centers on a near future dystopia of America, where in order to fight um, the, the effects of climate change ravaging the American continent, the U S military, like, trains people such that like they their gender right their 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 gender is in service of the state and their gender is attack helicopter you know their gender is gun or or whatever and so uh it's as i mean it's all heavily metaphorical as a lot of science fiction is like it's i would say it's not out of the it's not out of the ordinary for the genre that it's operating in um, the stuff that it's doing with the stuff that the story is doing with gender. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, it's not a, it's not even really a unique, uh, argument. I mean, it's a very Marxist critique that gender roles are sort of created and shaped by the state for the advancement of its particular ends. We've talked about this before with the nuclear family and, and things like that, the way it tries, the way the state tries to privatize, you know, the work and labor involved in homemaking, for instance. So on that end, it's not, that premise is not super unique, but what, what made people angry were a couple of things. The use of the copy pasta transphobic meme as the title, a provi- you know, a provocative choice. But then also the fact that Isabel Fall, there wasn't any information about who the author was. And so basically the the story just had a very short bio. Isabel Fall is an author born in 1988. I think that was basically all it included. And pretty immediately people started interrogating the identity of the author. I even saw like, I've been looking back through some of the old Twitter threads. Even saw that some people were um, speculating that the year 1988 was like neo-Nazi code because 88 is like Heil Hitler and like white supremacist posting now because uh, eight is the H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. <laughs> and oh so even people like from the very beginning were like, okay, who would have written this? There was an immediate suspicion that it was kind of like, uh, you know, a transphobe, um, kind of trying to put one over on the trans sci-fi community. 
Yeah. And I, I think that reaction came out of like a very, I think that there's like a certain subset of like trans readers that, um, tend to have a very like paranoid reaction to, um, to things that they, to, to things that they perceive as like doing gender discourse incorrectly. And I'm not, you know, I, I think it's a hard, you know, it's a sticky, it's a sticky, uh, situation to talk around because I do think that a lot of the people who were reacting badly to the story were doing so out of a, out of, out of a genuine sense of alarm or like fear that like this story was going to do harm. But I don't think, but like basically the outcome of all of those, uh, the beginning of the controversy that started with kind of a very niche like intra-trans literary community squabble over like, uh, is this person trans? Can non-trans people write about the trans experience? It, it ballooned until there were lots of cis people only and like only uh, amplifying bad takes about this story. And it eventually led to uh, Isabel Fall making the decision to pull the story from publication and she checked herself into a mental hospital because she was, I mean, she was going to die. Like she was having extreme suicidal thoughts. So the, the end result of all of this Twitter discourse was a trans woman, not only like fearing for her life, but in the article that she was interviewed by Emily Vanderwerf and in the article, um, you know, the, the kicker is that she no longer is pursuing transition. And, and no longer, the quote is that she no longer tries to think of herself as a woman, which is, you know, deeply, deeply upsetting. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the biggest thing that the article does uh, really well is focusing in on the, or, I mean, I guess what the, the interview with Isabel Fall like sort of illuminates is that the most damaging backlash to the story that she received were people saying this had to have been written by a cis man or a cis woman who's a turf or you know people who are transphobic because a trans person would never write this way about gender and um isabel says in this in the article this story most of all i wanted people to say this is what she's saying that she hoped the reaction to the story would be. Most of all, I wanted people to say, this story was written by a woman who understands being a woman. I obviously failed horribly. And so she ends up saying like, you know, it's just like, clearly I am not, like what I thought about myself and my identity isn't true or else other people wouldn't have reacted this way by interrogating, you know, whether or not uh, what I wrote was true to like the trans experience. And it ends with this really, really, really sad quote. Isabel was somebody I often wanted to be, but not someone I succeeded at being, she says. I think the reaction to the story proves that I can't be her or shouldn't be her, or at least won't ever be her. Everyone knew I was a fraud right away. Yeah, yeah, Deep, deeply upsetting and, and deeply sad just for this one person. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the recap, I guess, of of what happened of like the whole situation. And I guess the, the article kind of the current situation as it stands, which is that we will probably see no more writing by Isabel Fall, um, at least under that name. She has, that story has been nominated for a Hugo Award, which uh, the Hugo Awards have had their own controversies over the past few years. If you're in the science fiction like fan community, I'm sure you know more about it than I do. But so I'm. I think that's why all of this discussion is coming back up now, is because the Hugo Awards are coming up, and it also maybe as a transition to like what you wanted to talk about, Isaac, a Hugo Award nominated author, N.K. Jemison, actually weighed in on this debate, um, and in my opinion, made the whole thing a lot worse. <laughs> um, in the original controversy, she tweeted a thread that, you know, called the story harmful and uh, agreed with a lot of the people who uh, were, you know, in my opinion, engaging in some pretty bad faith reading of, of the story and 
speculation about the story's author. But N.K. Jemison called, uh, said that the story was doing PTSD levels of harm to readers. Uh, and she recently, and I mean, I, I mentioned her by name because she also posted a public apology, which was not a real apology. It was like pretty mealy-mouthed <laughs> as it goes. But the idea that um, a story, like a short story, a publicly available short story posted on the internet can do PTSD level harm to me is a, a pretty outrageous claim. Um, and I think you wanted to talk more about um, kind of like the ways of reading stories and like paranoid versus uh, therapeutic readings here. So did you want to transition into that a little? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I wondered if, I mean, feel free to say that, that you don't want to do this, but part of the reason why I was struck by the story so deeply besides its own content and not having heard about it in the first place is some of the parallels to what happened to you and with the Rod Dreher of it all when you were attacked by like the far right after posting about, you know, grad school and just recently having publicly publicly told people you were trans. I don't know. Can Do you see any parallels between that and for folks who maybe we haven't really like dug into the story on the pod. Like, do you want to do any of that at all? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I can. Yeah. I mean, like I did, I think feel, I feel a lot of um, kinship to Isabel Fall in that situation. And I mean, I want to be clear that I experienced far, far less online backlash than she did. Um, It was like really, really bad for her, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that I really explained the situation on the pod, although I assume listeners probably know that like Rod Dreher posted a blog uh, that in part was about uh, my tweets and how my tweets reflected uh, my uh, unreadiness, like like just like how I was unfit for divinity school. Um, And it was pretty, pretty directly because I was trans, not because of any like real political political uh, ideologies that I hold because he doesn't care because he's like terrified of trans people. Yeah. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was a really hard time for me that was exacerbated by, um, by several different reactions from like the institutions I'm a part of, but it, it did like, I think the thing that connected with me most about the Isabel Fall story is that, uh, like I did, I really, um, I couldn't stop thinking for a while, like how much easier it would have been if I had just like been a cis woman or just gone back to using she, her pronouns and, and like being a lesbian, like a cis lesbian, like it, there's a different uh, level of vitriol that I've experienced just in a short time as being an out trans person than there was to even being an out lesbian that was really upsetting and uh, and that I really uh, don't think that people outside of like the trans community or very close trans allies are aware of. Um, and so that was, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much like farther to go with that. It was, it was a reading about Isabel Fall's experience, I think, Pointed to like I very I think I very easily if I had um, didn't have as strong as a support system and didn't have as many people in my life who love and affirm me like if I didn't have that I think I very easily could have come to the same conclusion as Isabel which is that it's not it's not worth it to try and to try and change myself and try and um, try and assuage like my gender dysphoria like on balance it would have, it might've been easier to just like live in the world as a woman, you know? I mean, and this is, uh, this is all before I even like had made steps to like even attempt to medically transition, you know? So uh, it was just, and I I think I have no idea where Isabel fell in that, uh, like along that spectrum, but it seems like she was in pretty early transition too. So there were some pretty striking similarities that I just, I think I really felt for her and, um, you know, really understood where she was coming from in that. So just to provide more, some more backstory for folks who may not have 
followed what happened to you on Twitter. I guess um, when a while back we did an episode with Stephen Martin about the Institute on Religion and Democracy, and specifically uh, Mark Tooley, who runs the IRD, former CIA agent who's now doing a regime change in the United Methodist Church. <laughs> and he was the one just literally like 10 days or two weeks after that episode had been out who went on your feed and quote tweeted a, a tweet you made, a joke you made about Ronald Reagan and by saying this person just announced acceptance to Duke Divinity School. And then that led to Rod becoming aware of the story and, uh, you know, posting about it on the American Conservative, where he constantly posts about Duke Divinity School. It's like a hobby horse of his, like whatever he can, you know, he's posted about like some of the African-American professors before and their writing. And he's posted about other things. Like when I was in school there, he posted about uh, the decision by Duke Chapel to um, project the Muslim call to prayer from the from the tower and just different things like that. So like Mark Tooley's own agenda, you know, seeing your tweets, I don't even know how, like he must've been like searching or something. <laughs> like I, I, we, we I have, think it's, I mean, it's literally, I think just cause I said Duke Divinity School, like I'm sure he has a Google alert set up for it or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we have not confirmed that he listened to the podcast, <laughs> but if he did, and he's still listening. Fuck you, Mark. Just in case you're out there. <laughs> um, but secondly, like he also has a history of of attacking you personally because of other things related to the United Methodist, you know, debate about whether or not to allow same sex marriage and ordination. Uh, but I, I wonder. I wanted to ask you if you would say more about, if you want to, about the the difference you've experienced in coming out as trans and and when you originally came out as as a lesbian a few years ago? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like downplay the homophobia that um, that people experience uh, at all because it's real. But I think, uh, I mean, part of it is that I think coming out as trans now, uh, trans people are just like way more in the news, right? Um, like trans women especially are increasingly visible and like can like in bad ways like conservatives are creating a moral panic about trans women and um trans at like trans girls playing sports and stuff and so i think part of it is just that i came out as trans at a time when there's like this moral panic fomenting about you know whether women should play women's sports basically <laughs> but i just i felt like when i came out as a lesbian, or I think I came out as bisexual first and then a lesbian, but whatever. You <laughs> truly I, are the slippery slope that they warned us about. Yeah, it's like, it's been a real, it's been a real circle. <laughs> it's been a real circle situation where I was like, am I bi? Maybe I'm a lesbian. Am I non-binary? Maybe I'm a man. Am I bisexual again? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's been it all a very, comes back to that Ikea couch. I, yeah. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> but, I, like, I think that um, for Christians, like, I think, I honestly think that the debates for Christians specifically about gay people versus, like, trans people, like, sexuality versus gender, I think in certain Christian spaces, honestly, the discussions are very different because, um, because they're, like, they see, like, being gay, like they see both things as being a choice, but I think like being gay, a lot of a lot of gay cis gay people like don't necessarily you can't just like look at someone walking down the street and be like that person's gay. Whereas I think with trans people or gender nonconforming people, even if they identify as cis, like gender nonconforming and trans people, um, you know, you can you can tend to be able to point at them and say like that person is out of the ordinary and it scares me. And um, I think that's like what's driving a lot of the extra fear from, from Christians of Rod Dreyer's ilk 
and I don't know, it was just like, you know, like people, when I came out as gay, like people were like, it's a choice and I disagree with your theology. But like when I came out as trans, people were like calling me an abomination and shit or like just like misgendering me in like really horrific ways where it's like, I wouldn't like, like even if I was a woman, I would hate you talking about me like that. You know, like it was a, like there's a level of cruelty to it um, that I think just like peels back peels peels back some of the rhetoric to like what they're actually what they actually want to do which is scare people out of transitioning or shame people out of transitioning i don't know i i I think that uh i mean i i think the way you said about you know that desire to kind of interrogate people's bodies especially in state legislatures now where this has become the new kind of reaction to the Biden administration and stuff like that is to pass legislation like where, you know, you have to, you know, high school students have to confirm their biological sex to referees before a game or something like that. It's all about this kind of exposure of what, what does your, like, disregarding what people say about themselves and trying to like find some sort of biologically determining factor that tells the actual story about them. And I wonder if, do you think it's wrong to say that in some ways the backlash to the fall story and specifically the attacks on her identity as this was definitely written by a cis man and not and like, there's no way a trans person could ever write about gender this way. Do you see a similarity in that impulse or do you think that's a bad comparison? Because it just came up for me here, hearing you talk about making that connection to you know, the, some of the reaction to when you came out as trans? I don't think that, like, those people, like, I don't think that the people that were making those attacks on Isabel Fall and, like, the people who were, like, in Rod Dreher's comments attacking me, I don't think that they would see themselves as allies, but I do think that there's a common ideological thread there, which is very often just trans misogyny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or a, an impulse to, like, taxonomize gender uh, really rigidly because anything any any gender expression anyone who falls outside of a really rigid expression of gender um, is scary <laughs> and but you know like we we know nothing about uh, oh, I'm just I'm, I'm feeling the need to hedge my bets right now because I'm afraid I've said something weird I don't know but we, we really know nothing about Isabel Falls like gender expression um, what she looks like physically. And I think that's part of like what makes this whole thing so incredibly weird and strange is that like literally just by someone existing as a trans woman on the internet, like it, it, it created this sort of backlash. And so I guess I don't want to get too far away from that point because it seems really important to me. Yeah. I mean, that's it. And, and I think that uh, it's like worth pointing out that, if Mark Tooley did hear the podcast that we did about him, you know, he didn't choose to like go after me or Brian who have like plenty to lose. If, you know, our bosses like heard the shit that we said about Mark Tooley or on any of our podcast episodes, (laughs) but specifically to attack the, you know, the trans person that is one of the hosts. I mean, that it just, you know, again, it, it goes back to like, what is at stake for our allies to LGBT people in like creating, affirming, and welcoming and safe spaces for for uh, queer folks? Is that like and being publicly trans is dangerous for them. <laughs> you know? Not that it needs to be. I don't know. Just that point can't be made enough. That like the it, it's not just about some like different set of ideology, but it's about a type of violence that is like aggressively being pushed right now, but has, but is only being effective in, in its, you know, recent kind of political victories because of the way it's sort of constantly stewing around in our churches and our communities and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like the ultimate goal of all of these campaigns is to push trans people out of public life. And that, I mean, like in a lot of ways, at least in, in my case and in Isabel Falls case, like it was successful. Like I really, I had to like lock down, I mean, Rod linked to all of my social media. And so I had to like lock that all down 
then like eventually delete. I don't have a public Twitter anymore and I don't have a sub stack. And, um, cause I was getting like some really scary <laughs> messages and stuff. And I, I can only assume that like Isabel Fall, who had like a much bigger exposure to like, you know, like I, I was exposed to like online crazies, but like people that I respect don't take Rod Dreher seriously. Um, Isabel Fall was really kind of, I think, experiencing this judgment as a, by um, maybe what she perceives as a jury of her peers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I could, but that also exposed her to like the much wider online world of craziness and like that. And the backlash eventually, like she, I mean, not only is the story taken down, but she's like literally no longer using the name Isabel Fall. Like the person we are talking about goes by a completely different name that we don't know. So in it, I mean, it's, it's taking, it's taking trans people out of public life to the, to the very extreme. Yeah. And I think that's a, a major and really important difference is that the discussion within her community made her feel like she couldn't possibly have been right in what she was discovering about herself by writing this story. Yeah. I, so I, I think that there is no like easy segue here into like, into academic theory or something like that. But part of what's at issue here, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to say is that since the, um, you mentioned N.K. NK Jemison like giving a, a, an apology, I've been kind of going through and seeing some of the people who originally kind of took part in the pylon to see if they responded at all to the Vox article. And, and several of them responded very badly. <laughs> Oh, really? I didn't see that. What, like what? Oh, it's just like several people who really let the pile on, you know, once the Vox article came out with like NK Jemison posted on her blog and like several people posted Twitter threads that I think have now been deleted that are just like, yeah, I'm sorry, but like, I'm also the real victim here because people got mad at me on the internet for instigating a pile on against a trans woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, the, some of the places that I looked, there was like, just either um, kind of a, a side eye acknowledgement or that kind of defiant, like, you know, I wasn't wrong. And you know what? I get, I, I, but I guess the, the question that, you know, kind of on a deeper level here isn't really about like, oh, cancel culture or whatever else, but this notion that was prevalent throughout the reaction to the story, which is by reading this story, by a type of reading what is on this page, I can discern the identity of its author. And I can prove that this thing is actually code, like the birth of the birth year of this author is actually code for neo-Nazi like propaganda or like the language that's used specifically identifies the author as a cis man or a cis woman who's a turf. Like it's just... I, I wanted to talk about um, because the the uh, article in, on Vox does a good job of bringing this up. Kind of uh, the difference between paranoid readings and and kind of reparative readings that Vander Vanderwerf talks about, and is you know borrowing from the field of literary criticism and specifically queer theory at, as a part of it. But before we go down that road, like. Anything else we want to say here before we turn that direction? No, I, I think I've said it. I think I've said okay. it all. Well, I think that, you know, it's not like, yeah. I, so I think that part of what the, what the discussion about all this means for art is, is difficult because it, it doesn't matter in the like context of like the actual damage done to uh, Isabel Fall. But I, but you know, that's actually wherein, where these things come together, I think in a really important material way. And one of the things we talk about on the, on the podcast a lot are, are types of reading of scripture that, you know, is often referred to as like a hermeneutics of suspicion or a type of reading that wants to reveal oppression or prejudice in, in biblical text and, and cast, you know, call people to like further interrogate what they're doing when they're hearing the words of the Bible. And we've definitely, you know, we've, we've talked about, about like how those things are helpful. And, but I think this story specifically gives us an opportunity to talk about how those things can be uh, 
can be harmful and and even violent. And so in the in the article on Vox, the uh, the author shares talks a little bit about this essay by uh, Eve Sedgwick Kosofsky oh, called Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading, or You're So Paranoid You Probably Think This Essay Is About You. And it's Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. I just reversed that. CJ as a person who admittedly on the pod has talked about not knowing a ton about theory. Uh, what was your reaction to reading this? And what did you make of the of the paranoid reading versus reparative reading thing it sets up? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was like a fairly readable article to someone like me who really doesn't have a, a, a real grounding in queer theory at all. Um, I think I'm mostly understood what she was talking about, but, um, you know, there were definitely terms that if I uh, had more time or I was like studying this for a class, I would have, I would have looked up because I don't, uh, I didn't fully understand some of the, some of the academic framework that was going on. Um, that was kind of like grounding the text, but, uh, I guess maybe what, so what I understood from the article is that like, there's a, a paranoid reading, which is looking for, which, which is assuming that there, um, that whether or not the text you're reading is doing so intentionally or not, a paranoid reading assumes that, um, like in the case of queer theory, assumes that like uh, the gender binary has has snuck in to the into the text, like kind of regardless of whether or not the author is intentionally building uh, building like rigid gender roles into the text versus like a reparative reading um, is. I I think the reparative reading is where it lost me a little bit more. Like a reparative reading is more. Uh, hopeful or like there's there's fewer assumptions of of, like I guess fewer assumptions that the text is already doing something bad that needs to be pointed out and critiqued in a reparative reading but so that's what I understood of it but I could be wrong well I I it's so it's a pretty complicated thing but you know I think a lot of people to start off I think a lot of people assume that like the hermeneutics of suspicion is this thing that's been like you know, kind of heavily theorized as something in and of itself. Like somebody just said, I'm going to write, I'm going to sit down and write the hermeneutics of suspicion. And and that word hermeneutic just basically means like the lens through which you're reading something. So you're reading a text through the lens of suspicion that it has something, you know, that a text has more to say about itself than it presents or maybe is even aware of that you, you as a reader have to question it and interrogate its assumptions in order to kind of reveal its like deeper, most of the time relationship to kind of systemic oppression. And the the reality here is that a lot of these terms in in uh, Sedgwick's article, I'll go back to this kind of intellectual genealogy of Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, and psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic theory, and kind of the role of paranoia and Freud's thought and, and all of that could is really, really interesting and, and worth people's time to study, but it's also like extremely complicated <laughs> and probably not something you want to listen to us decode for the next uh, however long. But I think the biggest thing is that, you know, what she, she uses a really helpful anecdote at the beginning to just talk about a conversation she was having in the late 80s with with a scholar named Cindy Patton about like the history of HIV and theories that people had at the time about whether or not the you know the HIV virus was created by the military and intentionally released as a like sort of attack on on LGBT people in the United States by the military or how it you know what its relationship was to like the economics of global traffic and blood products and all this stuff. And she says that uh, basically she asked Patton what she thought about all of this. And Patton just responded like, if, if we could figure out that all of those things are true and like confirm that they're true, you know, that the United States military like actively tried to specifically target 
African-American gay men during the, the AIDS epidemic or something like that. She's, she just says, what would we know now that we don't already know? And, um, you know, Sedgwick, Sedgwick talks about how like that really kind of pulled her up short and in the question of like, what is the ultimate purpose of reading things through the lens of, of suspicion or paranoia? And like, what exactly does knowledge do when you have it? And so I think that what she, what she goes on to say is that even if someone has like, even if we could prove that, you know, the AIDS epidemic was like intentionally done by the United States government, that doesn't necessarily mean that A, it came from, you know, the, the conclusions or knowledge of it came from a type of reading or, um, but secondly, it doesn't necessarily mean that we know how to fix it either or how to react to it or that only a person who applies the hermeneutics of suspicion can can figure those things out and so in the academy it gets a little more complicated than that but one of the things i think it's helpful for is that a lot of times when we're like one of the points she makes is that we're living in a country where violence um is just so obvious already that a type of paranoid reading that's only focused on exposing the text's relationship to systemic oppression kind of doesn't like as a way of revealing it, right? We're going to read so as to reveal this text relationship to violence in the United States that when our country doesn't even bother to like hide that violence to begin with, what are you really accomplishing by, by only using that lens all the time for every single text that you read? And I think one of the ways that I see this happening in our current moment is, you know, people who think that, you know, who are like constantly preaching or teaching in Christian spaces from the context of like, hey, how can we preach and teach in a way that'll awaken people to the reality of systemic racism? I think one of the unspoken assumptions that's made in that goal is you're assuming this infinite amount of like naivete in your audience to begin with. Like, why wouldn't they already know that this country is built on systemic racism because it's so obviously not hidden that it is, right? I mean, one of the things that the hermeneutics of suspicion kind of assumes is that violence in a society is hidden, that it's placed out of sight. But is that really true in the United States? (laughs) Are you tracking with any of this so far? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, like at the same time that uh, the, the original controversy of the Isabel Fall, like attack helicopter story was going down, um, like J.K. Rowling was just publishing a book that's just openly transphobic. Like it's just a straw man where I'm a man in woman's clothing. But that she, I don't think, I haven't read it, obviously, because I'm not going to give her money, but like I don't know if she uses the words trans woman or if she, you know, just posits him as a man in woman's clothing the entire time, but is like a serial killer. It's like a Buffalo Bill situation. And that was happening at the exact same time. It's like, there's no literary merit there. <laughs> like it's, it's JK Rowling. Like her, her writing has never been uh, amazing, but now she's just doing violence out in the open. She's just publishing transphobic propaganda out in the open, like at the same time that people, I think, were reacting with a, out of a paranoid reading to the Isabel Fall story, which, in my opinion, was actually doing something interesting um, on a craft level. So what, so what you're saying is like, why do we need to interrogate like the identity of this author to prove whether or not this text is transphobic when there's literally a cis woman publishing unabashedly transphobic, you know, novels through like, I, don't, I actually don't want to say a publisher because I don't know, but... I mean, um, it's I was, a British publisher, I think. Yeah, I was trying to think of who published the Harry Potter books, but they obviously wouldn't be publishing her adult novels. Anyway, derailing the point. But like, yeah, we we don't need to like develop a specific type of reading that's going to like illuminate this when people can already just do it if they're famous enough, like J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess my point was like, the violence is happening out in the open. I mean, like, the violence is happening in state legislatures out in the open. So, so I I think I was, I was tracking with what you were saying. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I think that like, what, what you're saying then is, 
And part of what Sedgwick is, Sedgwick is trying to say is that in those attacks on trans rights in state legislatures, the spectacle is the point, right? The spectacle of of putting trans people on trial and litigating the like geography of their bodies and the specific performance of their gender in the world of sports and like you know getting down to these scientific debates about the role of testosterone and athletic performance and and you know having people come in and testify about like their fear of going to the bathroom with a trans person all of that the spectacle of it and having that arena whipped up around it is the entire point of what they're doing. And so to like try to go in then and then kind of act like the way to combat it is to make it visible or to reveal it through this, this reading that kind of assumes nobody understands what's going on doesn't really get us any closer to, to figure out how to combat it. And it doesn't really involve people materially in combating it. And I think a lot of times in congregations where where the goal, hopefully for folks, is that, okay, what are the next material steps? We so often say to them, the, the, the next step in combating injustice is information, is revealing, is exposing this stuff. But what are we, but when we get to that point, I guess the question becomes, to me, I, I kind of see like a double-edged sword here because so much of what's going on on the right, especially with like QAnon and everything else, relies on that same hermeneutic. I mean, especially QAnon, right? Like we're going to take these um, not only cryptic like messages from Q, which have stopped rec- recently, but also like random tweets or emails from John Podesta and say that any reference to pizza in them is actually a reference to like satanic pedophilia or, or whatever else. Like they're also doing a type of reading that relies on a paranoia that, you know, says, Hey, we're going to reveal the deeper truth about this thing. And even in that same situation, the violence is actually right there on the surface because the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, is real. <laughs> you know, his connections to very powerful people is real. Like Bill Gates' entire marriage and like life has blown up recently over whatever it is Melinda Gates knows about him and Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> and you don't have to like have a hermeneutic have, have a hermeneutic of suspicion to figure that out. You just have to like believe that believe what's being reported about some of these connections. So I guess it, it's it's helpful in, in the question of like, would we want to get people to material practices? What exactly is going to do it? And what tools do we think we're giving them through the forms of reading that that we create around biblical scholarship or around theological scholarship? You know, because I, I think we do end up in this kind of like feedback loop of like exposure, exposure, exposure. And somehow that becomes the entire project without without ever like without ever really changing the conditions of the communities that that exposure is being made in. I don't think I have a <laughs> something to add there. I want to reiterate one more time because I don't want this to be like, oh, hey, we're I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm also trying to hedge my bets as you were earlier because <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I do think like in this, dis- I have no idea what you're about to say. Maybe I'm about to um, completely counteract anything you're about to say. But I do think like in this discussion, right, there's a, there's a difference between literary criticism and um, like the effects of these readings and the real world, which I think you were taking it into the direction of like, what does a paranoid reading ultimately end up? But where does that take us in the real world and in scripture where versus like, uh, I think the stakes are, stakes are obviously quite high in the case of Isabel Fall. Um, it, but in literary criticism, it's, uh, I mean, I just think it's slightly slightly different right <laughs> like yeah yeah and i think i just i just wanted to kind of offset that in in a really drastic way like the the discussion is now no longer like oh all of the like engagement with a helicopter story by trans authors or trans folks on the internet if it disagreed with the story as an example of paranoid reading that's not quite it i i'm absolutely not saying that i think that 
What the article does a good job of saying is that the desire to use reading to interrogate this person's identity absolutely is uh, a type of of paranoid reading that did have a devastating effect. And I think that what what Sedgwick offers us instead, I mean, she she does a really good job of of saying, you know, paranoid reading by itself is a relationship to a text or to history or to to society. I mean, don't get, you know, don't get reading here confused for just reading a story. It's also just like how you read the day-to-day conditions of the world around you, that it's a relational stance, but that it, but in itself, it isn't like a complete ideology that you can frame your entire community or your entire sort of position around. And, but also that a reparative reading to do something that goes beyond just the paranoia, uh, just the paranoid reading, it relies on that initial paranoid reading. And I think this is something that a lot of people who've gone through a deconstruction in their faith may recognize that that initial phase, you you are learning like what it means to read things from a suspicious point of view. Um, but ultimately, there has to be like something you do believe on the other side of it. Because I think what um, that that assumption that a paranoid reading makes, which is that your audience is entirely naive to the re- you know to the actual realities of systemic oppression or um, to damage being done uh, in society to LGBT people or something else, like if that becomes the only thing that you're ever combating, first of all, you're you're not really like saying what you. <laughs> do hope for the world, but you're not even necessarily really engaging with something that like you, that that's where the paranoia comes in, right? You kind of create an audience for yourself that material materially may not even exist. And I think that like the, the, the kind of white innocent liberal that is so naive that they just found out that systemic racism exists, becomes a scapegoat for, especially for people in power. I know that in, in the city of Knoxville after on the anniversary of George Floyd, our mayor was like, so many people were awakened to the realities of systemic racism when George Floyd was killed as if like, that was the point of him being killed. Like the, you know, his death had somehow revealed this thing that no one knew was true beforehand. Meanwhile, almost half the black population in Knoxville lives in poverty and a teenager had just been killed by the police in a local high school three weeks before. And here she was saying, like, using that naivete as a way to, like, excuse herself and her own role in keeping justice from being done for for Anthony Thompson Jr. and his family. So I think that in some ways we end up reifying the very thing that that we want to fight against, where we just assume that the dominant worldview around us is this kind of naive ignorance of violence and racism and oppression. And uh, that becomes the only thing we're ever trying to do, just to say, hey, hey, this exists, this exists, this exists, when the material world around us is screaming it. But also just the... But the reparative reading offers us, you know, it takes that initial building block and offers us a a different way to go by after you do expose that reality, changing your relational stance to it and saying, um, as you already pointed out, like, what do we hope to build instead? And if this harm is true, then what are the answers for fixing it? And to me, this is where it connects with, you know, the abolitionist movement, um, what are the transformational things and readings of these realities that are going to help us get to a solution or a new place? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think you got a good beat on it. Okay, well, queer theorists who have PhDs, don't get mad at me if this article is <laughs> no longer relevant. We're, I'm not in the academy anymore. It's uh, We're, we're going to call the... We're going to call on the, we're just a little guy argument. We're just a little guy. You can't can't get mad at us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I I think we wanted to end. uh, Do we have a fight corner or do we just want to wrap up? I do have a fight corner if we've got time. 
let's will take us to the Chili's parking lot. Yeah, I mean, like speaking of paranoid readings, <laughs> uh, this fight corner. I mean, it's uh, it involves a former fight corner um, detainee, a fight corner invitee, but the actual fight corner is for Lieutenant Governor of Texas Dan Patrick, who is, by the way, under indictment for tax fraud. Welcome. <laughs> but uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick called for a re- is getting into the book banning business. Basically, he's he's getting into cancel culture. So this book came out recently called Forget the Alamo. Uh, it just came out like a couple weeks ago. So I actually own it and I haven't read it yet. Um, and it was there's was supposed to be a book event at the Bob Bullock Museum in Austin which is directly across the street from UT's freshman dorms. And like, it's between like the freshman dorms and the Capitol building. That's where the Bob Bullock Museum is. So it's like a big deal. It's in downtown Austin. And um, the Lieutenant Governor like called for the, the book event about this book, Forget the Alamo, called for it to be canceled. And Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick and other GR- GOP leaders are board members of the State Preservation Board, which oversees museums in the state, including the Bob Bullock Museum. And so they basically used their clout to get this book event canceled. Um, Forget the Alamo is like, it's like three journalists. They wrote a book about how um, actually the Alamo was not that big of a deal. And it was also all about slavery. And maybe we shouldn't celebrate the Alamo in the way that it is extremely celebrated in Texas public schools. Uh, I went to public school in Texas uh, from fourth grade all the way until I graduated from college and I had to take Texas history three separate times. And I know so much about the Alamo. And at no point did they mention that it was that like a huge part of the Texas uh, revolution was about defending slavery because Mexico actually did not allow slavery. Uh, Didn't mention that part when they were teaching us about it. And so this fight corner is just uh, for Dan Patrick, who feels the need to, um, like, I mean, literally cancel (laughs) these journalists. He's literally canceling these journalists uh, just because they, like, it pointed out some historical facts uh, that reflects somewhat badly on a bunch of dead Texans, many of whom are not actually Texan. Jim Bowie's there. He's from Tennessee. Shouts out. Hey, <laughs> The real UT stand up. <laughs> it just, you know, this book is like, I don't think, uh, I, I haven't read it. I don't think that it's revealing any groundbreaking information. Certainly Texas historians knew about this and knew about all this context. And certainly my class in college when I had to take Texas history and government to graduate, (laughs) it was a requirement, Uh, certainly like mentioned this more. And so I just like the fight corner is a little bit because I'm like concerned about how the lieutenant governor of the state is now like you're not allowed to talk bad about the state of Texas whatsoever, even if you're just pointing out historical facts about the state of Texas. Seems bad. And I'm willing to fight him in the Chili's parking lot. I'm willing to take one for the team so that maybe we stop banning books in the state of Texas. Yeah, I mean, talking about the spectacle of, uh, of violence, there it is. He is also very much under indictment for tax fraud. But the reason that he has not yet been like arrested or sent to jail is because there's like a law you can't be like you can't go on trial when you're holding public office. So it's fine. (laughs) Uh, You know, maybe not a fight quarter, but like living in Texas right now is actually a very interesting, (laughs) uh, maybe we can get into it in a later episode. I just feel like living in Texas has been an interesting vision of like what the future is going to be like under climate collapse. But, you know, we'll get into it later. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. The ocean off your coast is on fire. No AC, <laughs> no heat. Yeah, and uh, and you are absolutely not allowed to talk about racism. It's actually the law. In Tennessee, too. Yeah, yeah. Can't say the words white privilege in public schools anymore. But then, you know, the project on the other side is to be like, we need to like expose the existence of white privilege. Well, they just banned the literal words. So I think we get the point. 
<laughs> All right. One of the things that if you if you've made it through the this entire episode, congratulations. So sorry for talking so much about academic theory. We wanted to invite folks. We talked about this a, a few episodes ago, like having a mailbag episode. And friends, we want you to help us come up with content for episodes by sending us questions. And you can do so by emailing cancelbag at gmail.com. <laughs> and in a couple of weeks, if uh, you know we have enough questions, we will do our very first inaugural mailbag episode. That's uh, a C-A-N-C-E-L bag at gmail. Yeah. Cancel bag. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so look forward to seeing those. And um, we will absolutely... Uh, expose you on the podcast if you send us spam and or stupid questions. That seems like uh, more directed at Isaac's friends, but... (laughs) It absolutely is. Please send us questions. We'd love to hear from you. Yay. All right. Well, all takes have been revealed. 